Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Welcome back to the Diverse Tech Founders podcast. We have another special guest in the studio, this time on the edges of Central Park in the Big Apple, none other than Gary Stewart, who's going to talk to us about a couple of hats that Gary wears today, hopefully. But let's start off from the beginning. You wanted to peel back all the layers. You said you're going to be an open book. So let's start page one, paragraph one. Talk to us about childhood Gary and if childhood Gary would be friends with the Gary sitting in this studio right now? Oh, wow. That's like one of those existential, very deep questions. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm like super excited. Childhood Gary, I think, was very ambitious. Childhood Gary was like an immigrant kid, born in Jamaica, grew up in the Bronx. So I just always knew that like, I thought I was destined for more. I think like one of my high school teachers at one point said to me, you probably think you're adopted, right? I must have um, met some sort of like stereotype of like what overachieving kind of freaks think of themselves. But I kind of had a very good or high impression of myself. I kind of said, like, I think I can do whatever I want. And then I think I was also lucky enough that like my family kind of reinforced it in me. So I remember when I was a kid, my aunt said to me, just remember, you're as good as any, you're better than many, and you're inferior to none. And I think she probably said that just like as something that you tell a kid, but it's something that I just kind of used as a mantra throughout my life. Even to this day, like you always just have to remember that you're as good as anybody else and you're probably better than most people. It was weird that when I went to the Michelle Obama Becoming tour, you know, she was talking about feeling sometimes like a a fraud, right? Like, especially when Barack Obama was running and, you know, it was like, really, can he do this? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, he can actually win. And then she was talking about like going into G7 meetings. She's like, let me tell you, they're not all that. They're not that great. She's like, I've been in the rooms of all these people and they're not better than you and me. Like, they're not all that. And I think that's an important message, which is that like sometimes we make in our own heads, other people seem bigger or better than they are. And by comparison, that like diminishes us. But I think like young Gary never really suffered from that. Maybe that was kind of like, I don't know, like some crazy freak, arrogant nerd thing. But it was just like, I just always believed in myself. I was always like, I don't understand why people can't see how great I am because I certainly can see it. I was always like, I'm my own number one fan. And so I think to this day, because of that adult Gary, probably thinks the same way that young Gary did, which is like, as long as you believe in yourself and like, you just stop, don't listen to all of the noise and all the haters, like life is usually pretty good. So I have an idea about how you respond. Cause I got some follow-ups there. Yeah. Supreme confidence. Yeah. And I love that. <laughs> so today you are a founder, mm-hmm. founder tribes, mm-hmm. uh, also an investor. Mm-hmm. And now the managing director of Techstars New York. Sponsored by J.P. Morgan. So that's a lot to have collectively in one person. We'll talk about the history, maybe what led up to that. But uh, are you telling us that Gary, kid Gary, baby Gary, adolescent Gary expected you to be here now and this was the plan? Yeah, I think I'm behind schedule. You know, I think like kid Gary, like I would do stuff like read the New York Times because I someone said, oh, that would help you improve your vocabulary. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I need to read the New York Times because I need to improve my vocabulary. And then all of a sudden I started to realize they had this like real estate section and I would see the houses and I was like, well, I need to live in one of these houses. I would even start decorating it. Of course, at that point, like, you know, the only catalogs my parents had were like JCPenney. So I thought that was like high fashion. Kid Gary was like, I think I can be 
president someday. I think I can be anything I want to someday. And I don't know where that kind of like crazy sense of self-confidence came in. I think it was also because I had a family that just really made me feel special. I did well in school from the very first moment. So it was like I had really good supportive teachers. I had supportive parents. I had a supportive like extended family. So all of that just made me grow up thinking like, yeah, you can do anything you want to do. It's not to say that there weren't moments where I doubted myself. Even within those moments, someone would be like, oh, but you're really smart. And then I'd be like, oh, you're right, I am. And then that would kind of like take care of itself. Do you feel like your background, Jamaica, Bronx, played a role in that, specifically the geography, the nationality, the ethnicity, the background? What role did your identity play in cultivating this, I don't want to say supreme confidence, but that's what yeah. it is. Yeah, no, I mean, I think like there is something about being Jamaican. And the thing is like, you know, when I would go back to Jamaica, my parents would send us back to Jamaica every summer up until we were like 14, then until we had to get jobs. Up until we were 14, I was 14, I should say, we would go back every summer. And my aunts and uncles would organize stuff like tennis camps for us. You know, we'd go fishing. Yeah, because there was a very concerted effort, I think, for us to not fall into the trap, and this is going to be controversial, of thinking like an African-American, right? Like there was a, there was a very concerted, which is that like, you know, starting to believe what other people say about you. I think like when you go to Jamaica and you see, it wasn't my cousin per se, but like my cousin's cousin was like a defense minister, you know? So we were going to tennis camps, you know? My aunts would like, they would like literally organize like summer camps for us where it was like, we're gonna go to dance recitals. We're gonna go to museums. Like one of my aunts was like, got her PhD at Columbia in like the fifties, you know? So it was all about like, we have to eat properly. We have to talk properly. So I think maybe, and I think that's why I was kind of attracted to the UK because a lot of that was this kind of colonial approach to life, like replicating kind of what the UK had been or what like the impression of like a British noble had been. But it's like in the colonies or in the, in the Caribbean, you get a lot of that sometimes, which is that people all of a sudden start to think that they're like lords and ladies as well. And maybe that sort of kind of helped me in some senses because I was like going back to, I was like, oh, well, black people can run a country. Black people can be bankers and lawyers and doctors and... You know, even though I was growing up in the Bronx, that wasn't really my milieu, right? Like, I wasn't really, like, hanging out in the Bronx. I was going back to Jamaica every summer, and then besides that, I was just really, being a really good student in school. So I was kind of, like, in my own little world. So let's talk about one world that you eventually made your way into, and that's the tech world. What is your earliest experience with technology, with innovation? When did you shift from, I'm good at reading books, I'm good at writing papers, to, I like touching silicone. So I think it wasn't really about tech per se. It was my first experience with entrepreneurship, if we want to call it that, was like when I was at Yale as an undergrad, someone invited Charles Murray, who wrote the book The Bell Curve about the genetic inferiority of black people. And it just really offended me. I was like, well, we can't really like just take the sitting down. So I went to talk to the administration and I was like, so what's going on here? And they're like, oh, free speech. And I'm like, but there are a lot of black people that you could invite. Like, I've never seen them on campus. Like, so why do we have to listen to white people telling us that we're genetically inferior, but you guys aren't inviting any black people saying anything at all, really, because they're not even being invited. They were like, well, you know, you could do something about it. I mean, to their credit, Yale said that. And then I was like, okay, cool, I will. And I started an organization called the Yale Black Political Forum. We invited people, some of whom were controversial. I remember people kind of boycotted me when I invited Leonard Jeffries, who's this kind of like controversial professor in New York City. We invited Black Panthers. We invited Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, who wasn't quite as reimagined as he is now. We were just like, well, great. We believe in free speech too, but free speech has to be for everybody, not just for 
people trying to tell us that we're inferior. And then the university, as I, as I realized now, was like kind of like my seed investor. Because essentially they were like, okay, we'll give you a budget. You can invite these folks. And so we could like have our little canapes. And I don't think we could have wine at, the point, at that point. So maybe it was just like Coca-Cola. But they would give us like venues as well on campus for free. And the only thing is they were like, you just have to make sure that you have security if it's too controversial. That was my first experience with entrepreneurship. Like I was a founder of, of the Black Political Forum. My co-founder is now the dean of Howard Law School because it was like two black kids at Yale going into, I think, our sophomore, junior year saying like, this doesn't make me feel comfortable. And it's like, so what are we going to do about it? And so we did something about it. And I felt like that was my first taste of if you don't like something, don't just talk about it, do something. And then I think later on, when I was in Barcelona, after being a lawyer and being like, I really don't like people telling me what to do. I really don't like being bored. And I felt like being a corporate lawyer was like the most boring thing I had ever possibly imagined. It was worse than I could have imagined. It was like terrible. And I'm just not going to spend the rest of my life doing stuff that I don't like. And I don't like taking orders from other people, especially if I don't really respect those people per se, just because they're older than me or because they have some position in a company that's not going to be good enough to kind of tell me what to do. I remember being arrogant enough to say to one of them, do you think I studied for seven years at Yale, Magna Cum Laude, Phi Beta Kappa, editor of the Law Journal, executive editor of the Law Journal, just so I can come here and make photocopies for you? Yeah. I think probably looking back, probably that was not the right attitude and probably not the right way to express things. But I think, like, yeah, kind of arrogant Gary was just like, this doesn't fit into my plan of, like, what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. Like, you're wasting my time. And I need to find something that allows me to do what I think I was really sent here to do. Which was what? What did you do next after you got out of corporate law? I set up my uh, first company. And at the beginning, it was a real estate company because I was like, okay, well, let's, you know, because business had always been kind of like very foreign to me. Business was actually kind of scary to me. So it's okay. I'm glad you mentioned that because if you listen to this right now, especially if they know my background as well, it could be perceived as being somewhat of a pretentious conversation. You got, you know, Howard, Harvard Law, Cambridge, Yale, Yale Law in the room. But this is the first time where you're saying you were scared going into this endeavor. So talk about how you overcame that. Oh, yeah. I was, I was scared a lot of times. I mean, I think, you know, when I first went to Yale, story generally told is like magnum cum laude, phi beta kappa. But the first semester, I got like two Bs and I hadn't really been like a B student before. And it was because I had told myself like, oh, well, you're at Yale now. They're going to put you in your place. And I remember my dorm mates were not like me. I was the only black kid. I think it was like uh, two white guys and an Asian guy. Or maybe one, maybe two Asian guys and a white guy or one half Asian, whatever. But no black person. I was trying to like top myself up. You know, I was like trying to get better. So I was like reading uh, Henry James and it was like some book about Saint-Tropez. But the thing is like, I didn't realize like how you say Saint-Tropez. So they were like, oh, Gary, what are you reading? I was like, Saint-Tropez Spice. And they all started laughing. And I was like, what are they laughing at? And this one said, Gary, it's Saint-Tropez. And so there were moments like that where you kind of realize, okay, so I think I'm like good, but I definitely don't know the rules of how this game is being played. I started to doubt yourself a little bit. Like, okay, well maybe like this is like better than me or bigger than me or whatever. But what happened was there was a guy named Paul Frimmer who was, was now a professor at Princeton. And he was a TA for this graduate, like this is like a kind of senior or junior level seminar that was taking as a, a freshman. We had to write papers and he was like, oh, every paper in here sucks. And I was like, oh my God, like this is really going to be very bad. And then he was like, except for two papers, Kristen Magruder and Gary Stewart, who got the highest grade in the class. So I got the highest grade in the class on a con law seminar paper. And I was just like, how? and he came up to me and he's like, how'd you do that? And I was like, I don't know. I was a debate team nerd, like I kind of was New York City debate champion for one year or whatever. So I did really well in debate as well. So I, was like, so I just argued it out. And he was like, that was really impressive. And so after that, 
I started looking at my roommates, and I'm like, so how are these? Because then they, I thought they were getting better grades than me. So I was like, okay, so if I'm not so bad, why are they getting better grades than me? Like, I think I should be getting better grades than them. And so that was the last semester I got a B ever. Other than I think I took like some class about like some science class, astronomy or something like that. And I got like a B plus. But besides that, I never got another B again. But it was because like, you know, I started to doubt myself. And then someone, that's what I said to you at the beginning. Someone reminded me who I was. And then I was like, oh, so if you allow yourself to feel that you're less than, your results will be less than. But if you kind of like say, oh, I'm not going for that. I'm not having that. I think I can do better. Well, possibility is, or maybe even probability is that you will do better. And so that's just the way I've lived my life. And the same thing when it came to like economics and stuff like that. I tried to take like an intro to microeconomics class. I think it was, yeah, economics 101. And they started with like all this like math stuff. And even though like I went to a math and science high school, I went to the Bronx High School of Science, I was like, oh my God, like there are all these models and I feel more comfortable writing papers. So I kind of like stayed away from like that for a bit. And I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. So I was like, oh, I don't really need to know that stuff. But then when I realized I didn't want to be a lawyer, at least not a corporate lawyer, then I was like, well, what was really interesting about being a corporate lawyer is that we did a lot of work in like securities. And I didn't even know what that was at the beginning, right? Like, I mean, I had to kind of like, I was like, what is this? They started talking about derivatives. I was like, this is really some strange language that you guys are speaking. So I had to kind of learn this whole new language. And then they had us like proofread the prospectuses for IPO documents. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. Like, you know, I didn't realize these people started this company from nothing. Then all of a sudden they have to do an IPO and then the company becomes all big. And then I started saying to myself, so I'm here like doing the photocopying and the bankers are doing all of the like cool stuff. They were basically our clients and the founders are really the really coolest people of all. I think I want to be the coolest person and the richest person. I don't want to be like the service person to the service person. And I think like that was kind of like how I decided that I kind of wanted to delve into entrepreneurship. But I still didn't know what it was. And I had a little bit of fear about it because I was like, oh, it's going to be all this like modeling and math and stuff, like stuff that I'd stayed away from on purpose for a number of years. Yeah. So I had to kind of like figure out how I was going to get into it. That is an ideal segue into what you're up to today. What is Founder Tribes and what is the origin? Because mm -hmm. I believe it came from this sentiment of service. Mm -hmm. but we'll come back to that. And then also... How did you end up at Techstars New York and talk about sort of the things that led up to that? And I want you to speak to this if you can, mm -hmm. if you will, as if nobody knows what Techstars is or what the value is. Because sometimes in the space you can get caught up in mm -hmm. what you think people assume about it. So I just want to like from first principles, bring us up to speed on Techstars and definitely dig into Founder Tribes. Before Founder Tribes, like, so after I did my startup and we raised some venture capital funding, eventually sold a company. Then 2010-ish in Spain, you know, the economy wasn't in its best moment. And I was like, well, all these other folks have like a security blanket. I'm not sure that I do. And a friend from college was like, oh, there might be a role open to teach at a business school, which we call IE Business School. So I went to teach there. A year after doing that, like Telefonica came, the guy who's now the CEO of Telefonica Globally. And Telefonica is like a 50 billion a year kind of like telecommunications company focusing on Europe and Latin America. And they were like, we want to get into startups, but we don't really know about it. And you do apparently. So like, can you help us? I was like employee number two, helped them to set that up. And then three years into that, like I ran it in Spain. Then three years into that, they asked me to move to London, you know, to see if we can kind of like really help to get that program to the next level. You know, we were investing in early stage startups. You know, usually only like about like 40,000 in cash, 40,000 in services, something like that. But by the time I left, the portfolio was worth like $1.6 billion. 
I did the UK bit for about like five or six years and London was for about three years. But then after nine years in a corporate, which I had never ever planned on being in, because remember, I don't really like working for other people, but the great thing is that like they allowed me to be independent, to at least have the sensation of independence, which I like. So after nine years, I realized they didn't really seem to have like a growth plan for me because I was like, okay, so what's next? I've done everything you wanted me to do. I've grown the portfolio. Like London by itself is like a huge portion of the global portfolio. And I also ran Spain. So what's next for me? And there was no answer to that. And if I'm being completely frank, I felt like I didn't fit the image of what they thought should be the person who got to the next level. Yeah. I felt like, you know, I had been like one of the only black people in the entire company. At one point, someone had said to me, you know, you're the only black person I've ever met in this company who's not working in a service capacity. It was like actually a British person, but working in the US and it's working in Spain. I was like, what do you want me to do with that? So I felt like a lot of people already thought like, oh, he should be happy being here, right? He's like one of the only ones. He's probably the only one in the whole company that's at this level of seniority that kind of like looks like him and he wants more. So I don't know. It just kind of, for me, felt like, well, I can't stay in a company that I don't have a growth trajectory. It's kind of like, that's not interesting to me, right? I can get bored. So that's when I founded Founder Tribes. In the last few years at Wira, which is the name of the organization, Telefonica is the name of the company, I was like really focusing on trying to diversify entrepreneurship. So I was trying to do it geographically because I started to realize that like in, in London, for example, probably about 90% of all the funding in the UK goes to London. And in London, probably just like the, the central part of London, right? So a lot of people, when I said I went to democratize entrepreneurship, came to me from all over and all sorts of different institutions. I had members of parliament coming. I had like the GCHQ, which is the equivalent of the NSA coming to me. So I realized that there was like a lot of people saying, okay, we feel excluded, not just by race or by gender, but by lots of other factors. But of course, race and gender and sexual orientation were factors that kind of really kind of bothered me. And so Founder Tribes was set up to try and figure out if there's a way to use technology to make it easier for people of color and women and other underrepresented groups to actually get access to the social and financial capital that they need, right? Because at the end of the day, the way it works is that like a lot of investors kind of like, you know, entrepreneurship is so risky that people feel like there's no need to take an additional risk. And someone who comes from outside of their friendship network is an additional risk. I'd rather invest in people that I know because I can do due diligence on them or I can hear my friends tell me my friends can validate them or maybe my friend can be a warm intro. But someone who's not within my circle at all, in a world in which like most of the investments are going to be failures anyway, I'm not adding that additional risk. I actually had one VC tell me this in a group that I belong to supporting kind of diversity and venture capital. It was a white guy. And he said to me, you know, Gary, you have to remember most VCs, they're only like, you know, like three or four person organizations. Like a lot of them are just like small groups. He's like, you know, probably went to college together or we worked together at some point. Why would we take the risk on kind of bringing in like someone that we don't know just because they're a woman or person of color? And I was like, you do realize that my CV is better than yours. When I look at you, I see risk. Because I'm like, why should I associate myself with you? You haven't done what I've been able to do. You haven't accomplished what I've been able to accomplish. The arrogance that like simply because a person is a person of color or a woman, that somehow that means that they are inferior, less than, or risky, I think is kind of part of the big problem. So yeah, that's kind of like what Founder Tribe is really meant to address, which is that like a lot of times the reasons that we can't even be taken seriously. And I think even when, even with Founder Tribes and I was trying to raise money for it, I realized that a lot of people still don't take me seriously. As arrogant as Gary was, you know, I was hanging out with like Prince Andrew and I, you know, I think Prince Andrew was actually a really great ambassador for entrepreneurship. Like whatever may have happened outside, 
within that particular domain. He was a great ambassador for entrepreneurship, was really always really nice to me, really, you know, met my parents, met my partner, you know, like was really nice to them. Like, and not just here, but like in China, I just felt like a lot of people couldn't see me. And even though I think like I, I'm not like so invisible, people still couldn't see me. So I think Family Tribes is basically set up to make sure that we can help people who may not even have like what I've been able to generate in my own life be seen, right? Because just because you didn't go to Harvard or Yale or you didn't, you don't live in New York or San Francisco or Boston doesn't mean that you can't be a great entrepreneur. It just means that these people have a very limited tunnel vision. So how do you do that? So like when I found this apartment that we're in right now, you know, I, had, I used Street Easy. All I had to put in Street Easy was, okay, I'm looking for this neighborhood. I'm looking for this size, two bedrooms. I want it to be a certain square footage, you know, certain other characteristics. And then all of a sudden I got like lots of notifications. And I was like, why is it that we can do that with apartments? We can do that with dating. We can do that with shopping, but we can't do that with people, right? And the only thing that we have out there is LinkedIn, but LinkedIn is really, I think for me, more focused on recruiting and not so much on like entrepreneurship. So if I'm an entrepreneur and I want to reach out to a venture capitalist, a lot of VCs will say, listen, if you don't already know me, they'll make it difficult. They'll be like, you can't even add me unless you have my email address, right? So this, it's all about kind of like making these ecosystems even more closed. You have to know me in order to kind of get to me. And I think like what we were trying to do is to say, can we use the same sorts of technologies, recommendation engines, um, some sort of like intelligence algorithms to basically say, hey, you know, if we are in the same space and we're both, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, you're an investor, you have a focus on black entrepreneurs and your focus areas are like, let's say healthcare and ed tech and I have an ed tech startup, do I really have to go around asking all my friends if they know you or can there be a platform that says, hey, you two should talk? And I think that's what we're trying to create with Founded Tribes. I mean, we did version one. I think version one had its issues. And so what I've done is now reassembled my team in the, in the US. Everyone's basically working for equity, which I think is like another lesson I learned. I don't want employees, I want co-founders. And we're building it and we're gonna, we're gonna make it happen. So I wanna stay here. I know we're gonna talk about Techstars and we can go in on there because I think it's, it's definitely a story that needs to be told. But for founder tribes, if you're a founder listening to this, you're dealing with real problems that some of you anticipate, some of you don't. In many cases, in my experience with the founders that I've been speaking with, particularly in our community, there is an opportunity to build technical expertise and capacity. It seemed like you just sort of spun up your tech fairly simple, uh, at least that's the way it sounds. Did you have any challenges on the technical front? How did you build your technical team as a lawyer with oh, no yeah. engineering skills? It's really hard, actually. I mean, I think like, that was the biggest challenge. So like, you know, I think Founder Tribes version one was probably, failure is a kind of tough word, but like it wasn't a success, let's call it that. It was a non-success. Non and I think it was largely because I couldn't find the right technical team. Yeah, I think one of the VCs, you know, so I teach a class at Yale now too, right? Like usually it's supposed to be like every other semester, every couple of semesters, whatever. What's the class? It's called uh, Think Like a Founder. So it's about like uh, Joseph Tsai, who's the co-founder of Alibaba. He's also a Yale undergrad and Yale Law School alum. And he's put like a bunch of money among other folks into helping lawyers to kind of understand that there are more options than just working in a corporate law firm, right? Because he went from being a corporate lawyer to being the co-founder of Alibaba 13, 14 billion dollars later his life looks very differently than if he had gone to stay in corporate law. Peter Thiel's another one who was a corporate lawyer, left it, 
you know, did what was it, PayPal, and now he's supporting people I wouldn't support. Also, Yale Law School alums, but the point is, like, at the end of the day, there are more roots for lawyers than simply going to work at a law firm, and I think that increasingly, folks who've done it and made a lot of money are saying, okay, well, let's help other folks that may be mavericks within these institutions. For me, the big thing I realized is that, like, in version one, oh, so it was Amira Co. She came to talk in my class, and she said, you know, for us to invest in a company, you need to have two things, if it's a tech company. You need to have a super thinker. This is a person who has the vision and can kind of really think through the problem. But you also need to have a super builder. And the super builder is a person who's going to be able to build what the super thinker is thinking and then to iterate and to problem solve and stuff like that. If you have a company with only a super thinker, then the super thinkers, they're kind of like thinking through all the problems, but you, can't ha- you don't have anyone that's actually building it in real time. And then you have like delays and buggy products and like not really that much advancement. And I felt like... When she said that in the class, I was like so identifying with the problem because I'm like, yeah, I need to find a super builder. And so it's really hard finding a super builder because, you know, we had raised some money. But even if you raise money, like a lot of the super builders are like at the tech companies that we said they were before the tech companies started to like lay them all off. So, you know, it may be the case that like a recession or whatever it is that we have right now, a downturn is actually a good thing um, in terms of being able to recruit and engage tech talent or other forms of talent. But that was kind of like what I realized, which is that like, if you have a great idea, but you don't have anyone to actually build it for you and you can't build it yourself, the company is gonna have like a little bit of stagnation. And so for me, version two was, I need to have a tech team. I don't wanna have an outsourced tech team. I know a lot of people are into that, but because, and I've been talking to a lot of founders, when you have an outsourced tech team, it's like, they're not really into what you're doing. They're just trying to get like a paycheck. So, you know, you want someone who's like obsessed with solving the problem as much as you're obsessed with solving the problem. And so now in version two of Founder Tribes, what I have is one of my investors who works at like Google and before works at Amazon in a technical capacity, has said, okay, well, I'll be your like interim CTO. We're gonna solve this together. And I just feel so much more relieved because at the end of the day, like it takes a lot of pressure off of me because you know we just had like a really great chat yesterday where we're like thinking it through together. And he's like, okay, so help me understand how you think investors work and then he, but then he'll say to me, okay, so these are the technical solutions to what you're saying. This is how we can do it from a technical point of view. These are the options. Let's work through it. I would have to say that in the first two or three years I found the tribe, I never had anyone actually sitting down with me and saying, okay, this is your vision. How do we translate that into a technical point of view? Usually what they wanted was for me to essentially write the specifications and then for them to simply just kind of like, almost like you have to become the architect of the building. And I'm like, no, I'm not an architect. Maybe I'm the interior designer. I don't know. But like, I know what I want, but I can't build the specifications. I don't know how to do that mechanical drawing stuff. I mean, somebody else can do that. But I feel like if you don't have that super builder, then it's difficult to see how your company succeeds because the likelihood that a lawyer or a non-technical person is going to suddenly figure out like how to build a technical product without a technical person who is really committed, I think that's pretty remote. I think success is remote in any case, but like that makes it just an additional risk factor. And now you have a different cap on, a different lens, because you are picking from some of the hottest early stage, pre-seed, mostly companies across the country, Mm. maybe even the world. I'm not really sure what the scope is, but the the world. Okay, excellent. So talk about the worldly experience that people have with Techstars. Just talk to us about what that is, why people would come, 
what you might be looking for specifically, why if somebody's on the fence, because if you Google it, mm-hmm. you're going to find that maybe half of the startups have been quote unquote successful and the other half maybe not. So there are a number of people who even ask me, is this worth it? What say you? <laughs> well, each person should determine that for him or herself, right? Like I think like at the end of the day, what are the facts about Techstars? Techstars is probably either the first or the second accelerator ever, right? It's either Techstars or Y Combinator, depending on on whose story you're listening to. But the idea is that back in like, you know, the early 2000s, after the dot-com bust, at least the way I think of it, a lot of people were like, okay, well, we can't do that again. Like, we can't start investing in companies with no traction or no sort of like rigor and just expect them to become IPOable. We probably need like an intermediary. And I think like that's where the role that the accelerators play, right? Which is like basically being this filtering function to be able to say, like, if you're a Paul Graham or YC or a Techstars, hey, we found these companies, we worked with them for three months, and we think now Sequoia or other investor, you can take a good look. We've de-risked it for you somewhat. I think that in its essence is what accelerators should do. I think what's happened is that over the last like, you know, I don't know, like 10 years or 15 years or whatever it is, even with Telefonica, like, you know, we have to think, what is an accelerator? I think like everyone started to like define an accelerator for themselves. You have like a lot of government programs that were accelerators, but they weren't putting any capital and they really didn't have the connectivity to help companies to find the right mentors. Cause I think like, that's the other thing I find like really insulting. Like even being an entrepreneur and an investor and having done it multiple times and having a decent CV and all that kind of stuff, I'm still humble enough to realize that when I talk to a founder, I don't know anything about their business. Like, I think founders know more or should know more about their business than anyone that they're talking to. So you have to approach founders with humility. You are the one that has this unique insight. You are the one that hopefully has some sort of founder domain fit. And I hopefully am going to be the person lucky enough to be able to go on this journey with you, but it's your journey, right? I think like the insulting bit for me is when someone who's never been an entrepreneur, never been an investor, um, not putting any capital in says, okay, but I'm going to advise you. Because it's like, well... About what? You know, like the analogy I always make is, you know, Serena Williams is Serena Williams. And you're like, listen, Serena, I'm going to help you get your back, backhand better and your forehand better. I'm not really sure what the backhand and forehand is, but I've seen a couple of videos on YouTube. And I think now I'm going to advise you and you're going to give me a stake in your business uh, so that I can help you. Well, what's your, where'd you get the expertise from? Like, you know what I mean? So I feel like the difference between maybe a Techstars and a Y Combinator and some of these other kind of very elite programs is that like the people who hopefully are helping you, one, realize that they are only there to help. They don't know necessarily more than you do about everything. Maybe they've seen certain patterns or they've been through the entire process before. So there's maybe certain wisdom or tips that comes from just having done it, success or failure. That's what we bring to the table. And I think that when you then start to look at the numbers, you know, Techstars has had supported 19 unicorns, right? I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think it's something like the companies in our portfolio are worth like, 70 plus billion dollars or something like that. So, you know, maybe we don't know everything. Maybe we don't always do everything right. Maybe, but we have enough success cases that, you know, maybe there's something there, right? And I think to the point about, well, not everyone's a success. Well, not everyone's a success, even if you go to Andreessen Horowitz or Sequoia, right? Like even if they're investing later stage, series A, series B, the way this game is played is that like the vast majority of companies are never going to make it to the last round. It's almost like, you know, going back to the tennis analogy or the basketball analogy, you can have a lot of really good players. There's only one person that's going to win the league or one person that's going to win Wimbledon. It doesn't mean everyone else is terrible. It just means that they weren't the winner. And the winner takes all 
in a lot of these industries. So we can help you to become, maybe to get into the tournament, maybe to become one of the players. What we can't do is guarantee anyone's success. And I always say again, at the end of the day, everything comes down to the founder. All we are is an accelerant, an accelerator. Everything depends on the founder. Excellent. So there are several Techstars programs across the globe. I think they're even expanding into Africa is, is my understanding. So what is unique about your New York accelerator? Like what's what's special about it? What can you get there that you may not get other places or what are you hoping to emphasize? I don't even think of it that way. I just think about like, why do I like my job? One, black founders and Latino founders get no money. I think in the last quarter, like before black founders, maybe after George Floyd, we got up to like 1.9 percent of all venture capital funding. I think in the last quarter in Q3 of 2022, we got 0.43% of the funding. So the point is that like no one's trying to invest in black founders. Latinos don't get much more money than that. You know what I mean? Even though cumulatively we're probably like somewhere between like 30 and 40% of the population, together in the aggregate we get like maybe, I don't even know what the numbers are now when black founders are getting 0.4, but Latinos maybe together we're somewhere between two and three percent of all the funding on a good day. Right. So I think that when you have a program like the one that we've created with uh, JP Morgan, where there's 80 million dollars across all of the nine JP Morgan programs to actually invest, not solely, but at least kind of specifically in black and Latino founders that are underrepresented. That by itself is a differentiator. I would say to founders, I don't want to be like Trump, but like, what do you have to lose? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, you know, how many people are really out there affirmatively and actively trying to invest in underrepresented founders. And how many of those folks actually have programs led by people from the same background, right? My team, it's me. Tanaka is uh, my investment associate, black woman from Stanford undergraduate ESA MBA. And then Vana is half Greek, half Colombian, Cornell undergraduate, Oxford MBA, and was number two on The Apprentice in the UK. So we built a team of people who are like, super focused on helping people that look like them, like us, to succeed. And we've been given a bunch of, a bunch of money by one of the biggest corporates in America to make it happen, right? So I would say if people feel like they have lots of other alternatives, definitely by all means explore them. But I think that what we're offering is pretty unique. And we're also doing it in, this, in one of the cities, New York, where Blacks and Latinos are like almost 50% of the population. And New York is the second biggest city in the world for venture capital funding. And it's New York. I mean, because California is great, but like, I mean, I don't want to wear khakis and like go to sleep at nine o'clock, right? So I think like uh, New York has a lot of cultural benefits, particularly tied to the diversity. We're sitting here, you know, in my apartment. Harlem is not too far. We can go grab a meal and get our, our haircuts without having to worry about like whatever. I feel like there's just so much that we bring to the table in terms of New York, J.P. Morgan, and real money and real intentionality, a diverse team focusing on diverse founders. That's what I think we bring to the table. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Diverse Tech Founders Podcast. I'm Abraham J. Williamson, and we had yet another great guest to pop in. And if you enjoyed today's podcast recording, please give us a rating. You can do it right now on iTunes or Spotify or whatever, and we'll see you next week.